I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of sodium chloride. Sodium chloride. Something you don't really realize how important it is until you don't have any. Matthew, the fifth chapter, concerning the Beatitudes. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt hath lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set up on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men, they may see your good works, and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Father, we believe that this is your word. It's inspired. We believe that, that the depths of it are so deep that we can never plumb its depths. We do ask this morning that the Spirit of God would give us insight and understanding, new insight to the truth that you're trying to put forth to us through these teachings that you gave to your disciples. We ask that our hearts will be open and we'll have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to respond. We thank you for the privilege, the wonderful privilege, first of all, of having the Word of God available to us and the, then to have the teacher, the Holy Spirit here, to, to make it real to us and reveal to us what you meant. And then we thank you, Father, for each heart that's here this morning. Because you said if we draw an eye to you and if we hunger and thirst after righteousness, you'll draw an eye to us and we'll be filled. And I pray this morning that we'll sense that as we draw upon your word and the truth of your word. We ask that you'll anoint your servant. Uh, we ask that the Spirit of God will take charge and that everything that's said will honor and glorify the Lord Jesus, in whose name we ask it. Amen. As you go into the Old Testament, you find that God, in dealing in Genesis, the 12th chapter, he began to work with an individual. Up until that time, he was working with all mankind, but then there came in Genesis 12 when he began to work with a man by the name of Abram. And we won't get into the total story except to tell you that God called Abram out of the land, out of a foreign land, and told him to go into a land that he didn't know anything about. And then he said, if you will do that, I'll do two things for you. First of all, I'll have their land. God says his, that that land has a special place in his eyes, that that's what he watches continuously, that particular area of the earth. And we believe we're going to see some tremendous things happen in the days ahead concerning God's blessed people, promised people. And this, again, is why I said God married Israel. He is in a covenant relationship with Israel that cannot be broken because God the Father is married. He said, this is my wife. And I keep emphasizing that the church is only Christ Jesus' bride. We're not married yet. We're only engaged to him. We will be married when the married supper of the Lamb comes. But God the Father is married to Israel. So Christ spoke here to the disciples, though, and he said, Now, if you will be humble, 
if you'll be repentant, if you'll be gentle, if you'll be merciful, if you'll be pure-minded, if you'll be peacemakers, if you'll be overcomers, and if you desire righteousness, then he says you will be blessed and you'll also be a blessing. The same thing he said to Abraham. If you'll do what I tell you to do, you'll be blessed and you'll be a blessing. And he says to the disciples, if you'll let these principles operate in your life, you will first of all be blessed personally, but also you'll bless those that are around you. And these qualities shall make them to become, when these qualities are in our life, we become the salt of the earth and the light of the earth, light of the world. You see that? Jesus said, these are the qualities that must be in your life in order for you to be the light of the world. You remember when Jesus came, he said, I am the light of the world. And then when he went away, he said, now you are the light of the world. How can we be a light? Jesus was a light because he was different from anyone that had ever been on the earth before, and he only did and said those things that the Father told him to do and the Father told him to say. And he was humble and he was meek, but he knew who he was, he knew where he was from, he knew why he was here, he knew where he was going, and for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus was never in confusion, never questioning what his purpose was in life. Consequently, he completed the work that God had called him to do. And God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He was a blessing, and now he's blessed. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. And he said, when you're here on earth, if you'll allow these principles to operate in your life, you'll be blessed, and you'll be honored, and you'll be a blessing to the others around you. I am so glad that when the Lord Jesus tried to teach in his day, even though men, a lot of men didn't understand him, he used very, very simple, earthly, down-to-earth. Remember, he, he talked about the fig tree. And he said, the birds of the air have nests. The Son of God hath not where to lay his head. And he said, don't worry about tomorrow or what you're going to wear or what you're going to do. He said, consider the lilies of the field that they toil not, neither do they spin. Consider the birds of the air. They don't go out and sow grain and they don't harvest every year. And yet your heavenly Father looks out over them. So don't you realize that you're more important to me than flowers of the field that are here today and tomorrow. The grass of the field are here this morning and dead by tonight. And the birds that aren't right, you're much more valuable to me. So he says, don't worry. Then you remember he talked about the Holy Spirit and he said the wind, did you feel the wind? And you know, we can feel the wind, but we can't see the wind. He said it comes from where you don't know, it goes places you don't know about. And he said, but you know it's there. And he said, that's the way the Holy Spirit's going to work. You'll know it's there. You may not be able to see it, but you'll be able to sense his presence. And he talked about the mustard seed. Not only that it was the smallest seed in the world. You see, he did these things because people could perceive what the natural is like in order to try to perceive what the supernatural is like, what the spirit world is like. I've told time and time again the story that impressed me so much when I was a younger Christian concerning the church of Laodicea. He said to the church of Laodicea, you think you're rich and prosperous and have everything you need and, and uh, really you're blind and naked and wretched and poor and miserable. And he said, why don't you come and buy of me? But he said, you know, if, I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're not either hot or cold and you're lukewarm, you make me sick and I want to vomit you out of my mouth. What does that mean to us? But in that day, they lived in an area where there were hot springs. The Laodicean church was right in the area of hot springs, and that water was so strong in its mineral content that if you had tried to drink that water, you either had to drink it hot or you had to drink it cold. If you tried to drink it when it was lukewarm, it would cause you to vomit. And Jesus just simply used an illustration that the Laodiceans understood perfectly. When uh, Paul was writing to the church of uh, Ephesus, he said that you are sealed with a seal. Now, in that day, of course, they had the king's seal and so forth, but especially Ephesus understood what it meant to be sealed because they had, they were, were, there was a large lumber business in the area of Ephesus. And with the, way up the, the coastline, they would cut down the trees and put them, run them down into the sea, tie them in big uh, log jams, 
And before they'd ever go down into the ocean, though, they had branding irons, and they would brand the end of that log with their, their seal. So when it got down in the water, if it ever got broke loose and floated around, they could always go out and gather them all up and bring them back in because they would have the mark on them and they know to whom they belong. I, I know that up in Minnesota years ago, one man, they didn't do that up in Minnesota, and one man used to go out every weekend up in the lumbering area where they would bring the logs down into the Mississippi River, and he would find logs that would be off to the side, and he would drag those logs out, and many times they were very expensive logs, drag them off with his motorboat to the shore, and he had a couple of horses there. He'd drag them up on the shore, and he'd get them onto a wagon, and he'd haul them home. And he was making a good living just picking up the logs that weren't marked that had gotten loose. But Jesus, Paul was saying to the church of Ephesus, Jesus Christ knows who you are because you've been sealed, just like a log has been sealed. Even if you drift away from the regular group, you still have the seal of God in your life. And Jesus was the same way, using very simple things. When he talked about the sower and the seed, a farmer could pick that up very quickly. And you see, back in that day, most people were farmers. And he said the seed, there was nothing wrong with the seed. The seed was always good. We always had to be worried about the soil instead of the seed. And then he talked about the sheep. He talked about the wheat and the tares. You know, if you've ever been in, the, in farming or if you even have a lawn today, I talked to a man this weekend. I looked at his lawn. I said, what happened? He said, well, I sprayed it with weed killer. But I sprayed it and I didn't realize it had something like 37% nitrogen in it and I put it on too heavy. And he said, I not only killed the weeds, I killed all the grass too. And I immediately thought of what Jesus said of the wheat and the tares. He said, no, don't go in and tear up the tares right now. If you do, you'll destroy a lot of the wheat. Let's wait till the harvest comes and then we'll burn the tares and we'll put the wheat into the barn. So Jesus, in using these illustrations, is trying to give us a picture of the supernatural through the natural realm. And when he used the word salt there in verse 13, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his favor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and trodden under the foot of men. What is salt? Salt, scientific term, is sodium chloride. Now that's because it contains sodium and chloride, both. And these two elements put together make a delicious addition to our food chain. I'm told that if you separate sodium and chloride, you know from chloride we get chlorine gas, which is very deadly. And I understand that sodium is used in a certain way, and it is a very deadly thing. Also, separated, they can both be very deadly poisons. Now, the chlorine gas that you get from salt, we used to use in the flour mill to bleach flour and kill all the life in flour in the wheat so that when the flour came out, it would be absolutely dead, and you could put it in the bags and put it on the shelves and not worry about bugs getting into it. Then they'd take some uh, petroleum product and add that to the flour and call it enriched flour. And people think, oh, good, I'm getting vitamins and minerals. All they're getting is some dead, dead wheat with some oil byproducts stuck into it. Sodium chloride, separated, can be very deadly, but put together, it becomes life-giving. I remember the teachings in the Word of God has good illustrations of this. Remember when James talks about works? We have a battle going on all the time by theologians concerning the difference between works and uh, faith. And some people say, all you have to do is have faith. And James says, well, faith without works is dead. Another place he says, I'll show you my faith by my works. It's not enough to have works. Works by themselves are deadly and uh, can kill you if you're just doing it, trying to work your way to heaven. And then if you have faith without works, James says, that's dead too. It's like a two-sided coin. You must have faith evidenced by works. Your working should be evidence that you have the faith. It's interesting how that coincides with the idea of salt. Uh, we get the word salt from the Latin word salarium from which we have gotten the word salary. And the reason for that is because back in the early days the Roman soldiers were given so much money every month 
to purchase salt. How many have heard somebody say to someone, they're not worth their salt? Well, that's where that term came from. Say, well, I, I don't know, as an employee, he's not really worth his salt. That came from the days when they used to pay Roman soldiers so much money each month besides their regular pay to go out and purchase salt because it was essential for them to have salt when they were in battle because they had to have keep adding salt to their, to their diet. And the Arab word for salt, I'm told, is the same word that they use for covenant. In the olden days, they used to carry a little pouch of salt on their, on their side when they traveled. And when two men would get together, they would sit down to a meal, and one would reach in his pouch and sprinkle a little salt on his friend's food, and the other would reach in his pouch and sprinkle a little salt on his, other, on his friend's food, and they would make a covenant and a, a pact with each other, and then they would eat the food, and the understanding was if you never get that salt back out and put it in his pouch, you can break the, the covenant. The salt he sprinkled on your food, if you can get it off your food now that you've eaten it, and somehow get it back out and put it back in his pouch, then the covenant is broken. So it's a, it was a lifetime covenant that was honored by generations when they'd make that kind of a salt covenant. In other cases, they would simply take, uh, each would take a pinch of salt out and drop it in the other person's bag, and they'd say, now if you can get your salt out exactly right and put it back in my bag, the covenant's broken. What were they saying? They're saying, this is an everlasting covenant. It's not to be broken. So salt had a tremendous significance back in that day, and it represented uh, loyalty and friendship. And that's why when you talk to people, we hear people say today, they're the salt of the earth. They're the salt of the earth. It meant stability. It meant faithfulness. It meant commitment. The word salt. In Jesus' time, salt had several qualities that I'd like to share with you. And I want you to know that everything that Jesus says to us has a tremendous depth of meaning. Many times we read over these things very lightly. You remember when I talked to you about Psalm 97 where it talks about the righteous are like the palm tree and how I went into the different aspects of a palm tree and it was so enlightening to see how uh, there were elements about a palm tree that applied to a Christian's life that made it unique from any other kind of tree in the world. Well, most people reading that think, well, like a palm tree. I mean, what does it do? It sway in the breezes? You know? No, he had some real significant meaning there for us concerning the palm tree. And as we look at the salt, the first thing we found out from historic times is that salt has always been a purifier. The Romans used to say that salt was the purest of all things because it came from the sun and the sea, which keep the world alive and pure. They used to go out and make ponds of salt and let it dry or, or the water evaporate off of it. Then they'd scrape the salt together and then they'd bring some more water. They'd keep bringing water and let it evaporate and more water and let it evaporate until they literally get a, a huge thick cake of salt in the bottom of it. And then they'd dig it out and that's the way they'd gain their salt from the sun and from the sea. Jesus said to the believers that we are to be a continuous example of purity and in a putrefying society. When he says you're the salt of the earth, he's saying you should have a purifying effect on those around us. That we should, as we're around other people, make such an impact on them that we'd see a sociological change. Now, we found out this is true. In the Roman Empire, it was, it was rotten to the core. It was falling, collapsing completely. And when the church came along and Jesus Christ began to uh, appoint his disciples and the church went forth after the day of Pentecost, we find it had a revolutionary effect on the world. In Acts, the eighth chapter and the first verse, it said that they were spread out from Jerusalem and went everywhere preaching the gospel. And a little later on in the book of Acts in the 17th chapter, they, the Jewish leaders were saying they have turned this world upside down. Well, really, I think they're wrong. I think they were turning the world right side up. The world was upside down because it was going the devil's way. They turned the world right side up. Why? Because they were having a purifying effect on society. 
And they didn't do it by belligerency. They didn't do it by, by uh, attacking. They just did it by living such a pure life that other people around the kingdom said, what is it about you that makes you so different? And gave them opportunity to tell about Jesus Christ. England and Europe, back a hundred years ago and more. You remember in the early 1800s when there was a great revival that broke out there. It was just simply God's people got concerned and began to pray and seek God's face because the society was literally degenerating into total corruption. And God's people began to pray and ask God to send a revival. And in the 14th and 15th centuries, we had a tremendous revival also. Over and over again, here in the United States, there have been several revivals that have taken place. Places where God so supernaturally moved that people couldn't stand on their feet, they fell down. Why? Because God's people began to mean business with God, began to manifest the purity of their lives, show these different beatitudes in their lives to where the world became hungry for the things of God. Jesus didn't say you ought to be. He said you are the salt of the earth. And some people say, well, I, I can't be that kind of a witness. We are a witness, whether it's a good one or a bad one, but Jesus said he wants us to be a good one. When the Reformation took place, they became salt in this world too. The church was in a period of darkness and they brought light by bringing forth the Word of God and the Word of God is a lamp under our feet, a light under our path and its entrance brings light to us and light came to mankind and there was a, another great revival because of the church. Why? It was being the salt of the earth. If there's ever been a time when this nation has needed to see salt, taste salt is today. As I see the things that are happening around in our society today, I realize that unless the church is the church, becomes the church that it's supposed to be, there's not much hope for this nation anymore. The reason it's so difficult is because the church has become insipid. It has become blasé. It's become indifferent to the things that God has said in His Word. When the Word of God says we should be meeting more and more and more and more, all the more as you see that day approaching, we find people are meeting less and less and less and less. And I met with some pastors not too long ago that I, I remember at one time they had Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, then they would have Bible studies during the week. They had all these things going on. And today they said, well, you know, you just can't get people to come out anymore, so we just have a Sunday morning service. Consequently, people aren't being fed. You know, if we fed our families physically like we're feeding our flocks spiritually, they would all be malnourished. And the Word of God says, all the more as you see that day approaching, we must get together, we must fellowship, we must grow. And somebody said this past weekend while I was down in Bradenton, they said, you know, we go to church, but basically all we hear is get saved, get baptized, tithe, get saved, get baptized, tithe. And they said, we get to the place where we're just so frustrated, we want to be fed on the Word of God. You see, you can't grow if you don't get fed. And that's why the Word says over and over again, preach the Word. Timothy, preach the word. The things that I've taught you, you teach others. Teach them. Build them up in the faith. Make them to be strong in the things of the Lord. Why? If you aren't strong, if you don't have it put into you, it can't come out of you. It says that they're to be strong. When I, when I, just this past week, I looked at some papers, and when I see the immorality that's taking place in our nation, and how now, do you know that there are elements in the United States that are trying to get the age limit dropped down from 18 to 16, that men can have an immoral relationship with girls legally, down to 16. There are some that are even asking for it to be 14 and 12. Had that happened 50 years ago, the church would have been outraged and there would have been riots in the street and everybody would have just said, this has to stop. But you, slowly but surely, like the frog that was put into the cold water and the stove heat turned up under it, slowly the water heat just sits there until finally boils to death, as long as the temperature doesn't change very quickly. If ever there needs to be a time when we as a church should be the salt, we need to be the salt right now.
You know, God is still in charge of all things. And he said, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my faith and turn from their wicked way, then will I hear from heaven and will heal their land. God can do it. God can send a Holy Ghost revival. God can turn the heart of the king like a river can be turned. Like he can turn a river. If we'll just pray and be the salt of the earth. Why? Because Christians have compromised. Now we need to begin to pray and cry out to God and first of all ask for forgiveness and ask Him to let our lives be so pure, so upright, that people don't change because we make them change. They change because they want to change. They see that we have the answer. By the way, I want to tell you something. True biblical Christians do have the answer to life. What is to say the day will not come when they'll say, you know, you don't have the right theology or philosophy of life. And we really feel that you're a hindrance to what we're trying to do. And we feel that you need to be taken care of. So you say, oh, that would never happen. Listen, I've lived long enough to tell you that it never would have happened that children would have been aborted when I was a child, when I was a young person. I mean, when I was young, we even respected our elders, our grandmother and my grandfather. I used to go down to their house week after week after week and just spend time with them and see if I could help them and do things for them. But now, you know, I've seen, I've seen so many parents nowadays, when, grand, when their parents get old, they want to get them off somewhere and get them out of the way so they'll have to spend time with them. The whole lifestyle is changing. But you know, if the church, if the world doesn't see a difference in the church, where they see all these standards that Jesus said would make us blessed and be a blessing, then they have nothing to look to as a standard for life. The world is stunned when this a uh, group of uh, Amish children were hit by a car by a young man who was driving wildly and, and killed several children. The press came to them and said, aren't you going to file suit against him? Aren't you going to put him in prison? Aren't you going to make charges? And they were stunned because the Amish man said, certainly not. You see, there's a time to be born and a time to die. And we don't choose that time. God chooses that time. And we don't enjoy the fact that our children happen to be in that place at that moment. Nor do we enjoy the fact that that young man did what he did. Even if he'd intended it, we're not his judge. God is his judge. But our children, we know, are with the Lord. And you know, the press just, ah. When the flood took place up at Tekoa Falls, Georgia, and swept away all these families of parents and children, and, and they picked up their bodies and brought them up out of the river, and, and I've been up to Tekoa Falls and saw where all that happened. The press was in the main building where they, they were trying to take care of the people that were needy, and the parents who had lost their children, excuse me, one family had lost four children. And the press started looking. They said, wait a minute, those are the, here this, this set of parents were ministering to others in the building there and saying, here, how can we help you? And they came over and said, wait a minute, what are you doing? You've lost four children. How can you do this? They said, you don't understand at all. They said, what do you mean? He said, God gave us those four children. They weren't ours. He only gave us the responsibility of raising them for him. And every one of them knew the Lord. They're with the Lord. And we're so grateful that the Lord saw fit in his kindness to take them home because they all knew him. And the press over and over again, we can't understand this. Why? Because they're not seeing it in the church today. They're seeing a lot of radicalism in the church today, but not this kind. Where there's not vengeance, there's not repayment, there's not all the... Rather, there's the love of Christ that comes out of us and says, look, we're only here as pilgrims, we're passing through. This world is not my home, I'm not my own. All I have is not mine, it all belongs to Jesus Christ. He's Lord and Master of my life, I want him to direct my life. I want to be humble. I want to be meek. I want to be all those things that Jesus wants me to be. I want Christ to be seen in my life. And the church of Jesus Christ is the only, and I want to emphasize that, the only 
genuine purifying agent that can cure the ulcer of sin on this earth. Society can't do it. Reformation can't do it. Only the church of Jesus Christ. When I speak of the church, I'm not talking about Calvary Baptist Church. I'm talking about every genuinely redeemed person who through repentance and faith have committed their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the only purifying agent that God can use in this world to cure the ulcer of sin. There were certain tribes, I was told, years ago in Africa that could not get salt. They never could find salt in their area. And consequently, they, had, they, they would develop ulcers at a very young age and bleed to death. And I want to tell you something. If we don't infuse salt into this society of ours today, as God wants us to infuse salt, where they can see Jesus Christ in the life of the believer and actually hunger and thirst after that, we're going to bleed to death as a society also. If the true church, I'm talking about the true church of Jesus Christ, were removed today, the social fabric of this nation would fall in an instant. I believe it's the only force right now that's holding it back from total collapse. There would be no resistance whatsoever were it the church of Jesus Christ right here, but the church itself is becoming weaker and weaker and weaker through compromise. And God says, don't lose your saltiness. Jesus said, if you lose your saltiness, you're worse than nothing. Let me just finish this thought. How does salt work? First of all, it works silently. It works inconspicuously. And it works gradually. It's not radical. doesn't have to be. Jesus wasn't radical. He didn't have to be. The disciples weren't radical. They didn't have to be. They were the salt. Like one guy said, if you're right, you don't have to worry. I want to tell you something. We're right. Jesus said, we are the light, the truth in this world. If we're committed to Jesus Christ and we do what Christ would have us to do, we don't have to do it wildly. We can do it silently and conspicuously, gradually, to where men see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. They come and say, what is it that you have? And the Word says, when they come and ask you a reason for the hope that lies within you, be ready to give them an answer. I believe the time will come if we'll be the salt of the earth, if people come and say, what must I do to be saved? How can I be purified? How can I, be, how can I experience the joy and the peace that you're experiencing? James 1.27 says, as believers, we must keep ourselves unspotted from the world. People say, what does that mean? I really don't think anybody has any question what it means. Most of the times when they ask that question, they're asking it because they're trying to find an excuse. Like the attorney that came to Jesus and he said, love your neighbor. He said, who is my neighbor? Hey, I mean, how do I know who my neighbor is? Jesus just settled and he said, you be the neighbor. Whoever it is, you just be the neighbor. You know, when we go around realizing we're the neighbors, we don't have to worry about what the other person is. We're the neighbor. We can minister to them in the name of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ, through the love of Christ being manifest out through us, through these beatitudes, being meek, being righteous, hungry for the things of God, merciful, pure in heart, peacemakers, all these things will be the salt of the earth. I know that Scripture says we're to hunger and thirst after the Word of God. And if we hunger and thirst, we'll be filled. I want to ask you this morning. If you profess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, let me put it the way another person said it one time, and you are to be arrested today for being a Christian. If they took you into court, could they find enough evidence to convict you? If they sent investigators after you all week long, listened to your talk, watched your walk, saw how you acted and responded, would they have enough evidence in court to convict you as a Christian? If not, then rest assured, we are not the salt of the earth. Am I talking about perfection? Absolutely not. 
I'm talking about a bent. I'm talking about a direction of our life to where even when we stumble and fall, we get up and say, God, be merciful. I am so sorry. I really want to please you. Help me to grow in that area. Help me to be everything you want me to be in that area. I want these things out of my life so that when others look at me, they'll see Jesus Christ. What did he say? He said, I am the light of the world. Now what? You are the light of the world. The second aspect of salt that's very important in society is it's also a preservative. If there were enough Christians in the world, this world could be preserved. If Adam and Eve had never sinned in the first place, there never would have been death. They would have lived on this earth evidently forever. But because sin entered in and with sin came death, contrary to what our dominion theology brethren say, there's not going to be enough salt at the end of the earth to preserve it when Jesus comes back. It's going to be a preserving uh, effect from the church, but it's not going to be enough salt to preserve it before the Lord comes back. There's going to be a destruction on this earth, seven years of, of divine destruction, and then at the end of the thousand-year period, there's going to be the earth is going to be burned up. Heavens and the earth as we know it, and there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And there have been times in the past when there wasn't enough salt on earth. If you remember, there was a man by the name of Noah. And if you look at Genesis, the sixth chapter, it tells us there wasn't enough salt left on the earth, and God had to judge the earth. Genesis, the sixth chapter, and verse 1. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and the daughters were born unto them, that the sons of men saw that the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, and the same became mighty, which were of old men of renown. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And then verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord, these are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Another note alongside that verse says he was upright in all of his generations. Noah had preserved his family. He was the salt of the earth at that time, and for 120 years he continued to build the ark and tried to witness and share with everyone, and they mocked him and laughed at him, and God says he's going to destroy the earth. There wasn't enough salt left to preserve the earth anymore. And then destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. And then verse 8, But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and Noah walked with God. Another the uh, note alongside that verse says, He was upright in all of his generations. Noah had preserved his family. He was the salt of the earth at that time, and for 120 years he continued to build the ark and tried to witness and share with everyone, and they mocked him and laughed at him, and God said he's going to destroy the earth. There wasn't enough salt left to preserve the earth anymore. And then uh, the Scripture tells me that uh, when Lot went to Sodom and Gomorrah, and the angels came to Sarah and Abraham and began to talk to them, they said, we're going down to Sodom and Gomorrah, we're going to destroy it. 
And Abraham, immediately being the uncle of Lot, tried to intercede for Lot, and he said, Now, let me ask you and beg you, if there's 50 righteous, will you not destroy the city? He said, Okay, if there's 50 righteous, we won't destroy the city. And I imagine that Abraham thought, Well, maybe Lot doesn't have that many in his church yet. He said, How about 40, if there's just 40? And he said, Well, okay, if there's 40 righteous, then we'll not destroy the city. Well, be patient with me. How about 30? And how about 20? He thought, well, I know I'll be okay. Now, I'm sure that Lot's been doing some witnessing and he, he must have had some fruit. Now, how about just ten? You know, the angel said, if there's just ten righteous in the city, it'll, I'll preserve the city. I'll not destroy the city. Noah only came up six short of having enough salt to preserve Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about that. I want to tell you, I really believe with all my heart and life right now, the only thing that's preserving the United States of America are the godly people that are still here trying to take a stand for the things of God. I believe that God still sees enough salt here, but I'm concerned when I see what's happening to many of our denominational churches that at one time were on fire for God and witnessing and winning souls to Christ and just couldn't get enough into their program. The world has become so busy today, though, they're just doing all these other things, and so the church is becoming taken to secondary place. And you say, well, Pastor, why do you always say that? Because I see what's going to do to the next generation. I know what's going to happen with the next generation. Whatever you and I do in moderation, our children will do to excess. And if we put it into our children's hearts and minds, all we need to do is go Sunday morning to church. They're later on going to say, you know, all we need to do is go once in a while. Or we can actually just turn on the boob tube and just watch it. We don't really have to go there anymore. If we want to send them a check, we can do that. But we're just too busy. We can't do it. And I want to tell you, sooner or later, it's going to take its toll. That's why he said in the last days, because of the conditions are going to get worse and worse and worse, Christians need to get together more and more and study and search the Word together and exhort and encourage one another in the things of the Spirit. I want to tell you, I'm amazed at pastors that I used to go to school with that I know love God with all their heart that have succumbed to this thing and they've just cut way back and got a large crowd on Sunday morning. But you just can't seem to get them to see the importance for their family's sake of sitting under the hearing of the Word and the teaching of the Word and fellowshipping with one another. After the morning service day, we went out and had a great time of fellowship in one of the restaurants. And we really need that just to get to know each other better and to have a good time and... and uh, Become closer and know, under, know each other better as, as believers, not just look at the back of each other's head. And that's why we have picnics. That's why sometimes we don't have an evening service because we feel that fellowship is so important. But unless there's salt in this earth in the days ahead, the world's going to be destroyed. There, God seemed to think that if he had one good grain of salt in Nineveh, he was going to be able to save it. And he got uh, Jonah to go to Nineveh. He knew it was a godless city. He was obedient. He went there and he began to witness. And because of his witness, he preserved that whole city from judgment. And I want to tell you, there's only one way that I believe God's going to continue to preserve this nation. And that is if we as Christians will recognize the most vital element of this whole society is our own family. And to teach our own family and spend time with our own family and ground our own family in the things of God. And let our families, our children see that the most important thing to us is worshiping and serving the Lord. That it permeates every part of our family life. I was listening to a program this afternoon from another pastor speaking, and, and he said he, he knows he's got a lot of men in the church that think they're fooling their sons when they say, son, you go ahead and go to church because uh, I'm going to go out and worship God out today. You know, I've got some things in my mind I want to do today. Uh, he said, you're not fooling your kid at all. You're showing your children your priority. And you tell him you're going out and worshiping God out there, and he says, all you're worshiping is a large mouth back. He said, you're not worshiping God. You just want to get away and not hear the Word because the hearing of the Word demands a decision. We've got to let our children see that every time a decision is made, we're going to make it for the glory of God. We're going to, put, we're going to be able to say with Joshua, as for me and for my house, I'm going to serve the Lord. 
We need to pray for Washington. Look at what 1 Timothy tells us so clearly. We need to keep reminding ourselves of this. And the Lord spoke to my heart the other day too because, you know, we've had a lot of fun teasing about our leaders uh, that are in office right now. And we need to begin to pray for them. We need to get serious and realize that God is still on the throne and God can change their heart. 1 Timothy, the second chapter, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. He said as Christians, becoming salt means to preserve the nation by praying for those who are in leadership, that God will change them, that God will direct them, that God will give them insight. I can remember in the past when I have had a burden on my heart to pray that God would bring those who were trying to bring a corruption into our government to confusion, that He would expose it. And it would be amazing. Later on, I would see all of a sudden some scuttlebutt that was going on in Washington all of a sudden coming to the surface and people being exposed, trying to get the government to do something that they shouldn't have done. And I really believe when God's people cry out to the Lord, we can bypass our congressmen and our senators and everybody else and go directly to God as our authority and say, God, work in our behalf. We want to continue to have a witness for Jesus Christ. That's becoming the salt of the earth. That's becoming a preservative in the nation. And I want to tell you something. You never salt a living organism. If you have a sore on your body, you don't want to get salt on it because it, it really burns. I can remember the first job I ever had when I went out of my home. When I say a real job, I used to be a bellhop and a busboy and a soda jerk and a car hop and all those things when I was in junior high and senior high. But when I went out, you know, as a man to have my first job, I got a job in a hide house popping horse and cow hides. I mean, here are these, they had them all stacked out and laid up and they would have a stack of horse hides or cow hides this high and we would have to stand on each end of them and pop them like this three or four times to get all the salt and the blood off of them before we'd roll them up and tie them in a bundle and put them on a, an escalator that'd take them up into the boxcar and stack them up in the boxcar. And I'll tell you, you talk about a sweet job. That was a real sweet job. And I remember one time they were skinning skunks upstairs and I was downstairs. I could hardly stand it. I, that job didn't last very long. I'll tell you, I really felt the Lord leading me out of there. But you see, the, world, the Word says that this, the world system, when Jesus said, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, for the things of the world are against God. He's saying that the world is dead in trespasses and sins, and that's why it needs salt. That's why we have to be in this world to hold back the, and retard the spoilage that's taking place in society. And we must not despise a little bit of salt. A little bit of salt can go a long way in the right place. Now, I'll tell you, you can have a whole barrel of salt sitting over in the corner of a meat market, but it's not going to do any good if you don't apply it to the meat. The meat's still going to spoil but if you know how to salt meat down and, and put it in the right place and it makes contact as it should, it'll stop putrefaction. I remember when they used to salt the slabs of ham at Hormel when I worked at a meatpacking company. They'd throw the salt in between there and rub it all around and then put another one on and another one. And, and that meat would sit there and cure, but it would not spoil because of the salt. And it's going to be true of the church too. Jesus said, fear not little flock. Few there will be to find the way to heaven, as I said a while ago. But he said also that it's going to be the quality of the church and not the quantity that's going to make the difference. I really believe that we can be a light, we can be salt in this community if we let our light so shine that other men will see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. That's how we do it. When we're around the sinners, not isolated but insulated from the world, we can have an impact on them and come in contact with the corruption and stop the, the spoiling.
That's why Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. Salt does retard spoilage. We have been blessed as a nation. When this nation was established, it was established by godly men who had come from other systems that they did not want to ever have happen in this nation. And I really believe that they would turn over in their graves if they saw how all the truth that they established at first is systematically being corrupted and turned around and, and destroyed to say the absolute opposite of what they actually intended originally. But we had a good beginning because they, they said that all men are created equal in the sight of God. They said that the literature that we read should be the very finest. I want to tell you something, it's horrible as you go to the universities and the colleges and even our high schools today and see some of the literature that's become required reading. But that wasn't the way it was originally. Corruption is set in, putrefaction is set into our nation. They would have anti-smut drives. They would not let immorality be rampant in our society. They would constantly be putting people in jail for doing these things. And nowadays, more and more, they're trying to find ways that they can allow pornography and wickedness to prevail and pervade our whole society. And the only thing that's holding it back, if there weren't Christian groups going to our city officials and to our county officials and saying, no, this ought not to be, can you imagine what would happen to this nation? They always had fair business laws. And you know, every time you make a law, they'll, the attorneys will find 10 ways to get around it, and they make 10 more laws, and they'll find 100 ways to get around that. And it, it's just become so difficult that it's for an honest man to go into business today, it's very, very difficult to even survive because they can't be on level ground. But I still see salt operating in our society. I still see when a Christian will come around to a non-Christian and start talking to him, the non-Christian's very attitude and actions will change because he sees something there that he knows he ought to have. I've walked up in the midst of businessmen or, or laborers and so forth and hear them telling a filthy joke or cursing or something, and they go, oh, excuse me, pastor. Didn't mean to say, I shouldn't have said that around you. You know, Of course, you know what I do, how I get them back. You're just looking at the salesman, not the manager. He's in charge all the time, and he hears everything you say, so don't worry about it. If you're not worried about him hearing it, don't worry about me hearing it. You don't have to answer me. You have to answer to God. But God loves you, and he doesn't want to hear you talk like that. You don't get too excited. What am I doing? I'm just trying to be soft. And they go away because down deep in their heart they know they shouldn't, but when they don't have salt around them, the natural tendency for that which is dead is to continue to spoil. A third aspect of salt is that it makes food palatable. How many of you like when you're put on a salt-free diet? I'll tell you, I, I think I would just as soon have anything as a salt-free diet. Insipid, flat. It's like when they say no fat, no cholesterol, I want them to say no flavor, <laughs> right under it. But Jesus Christ has come to flavor life. He said, I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. He's like the salt of the earth. I mean, when he comes into a person's life, he does for life what salt does for food. He gives it flavor, it gives it vitality, it gives it something that, that you really want and desire, and, and it makes society bearable. Like people say to me, I don't know how people make it without Jesus Christ in their life. I don't know how they can make it through. Well, I want to tell you something. If you're ever around somewhere and you haven't seen a Christian for a long time and you're in a large crowd and you hear all this cussing and all this stuff going on around you, how refreshing it is that all of a sudden walk up someone and, and you begin to talk and you say, oh, are you a Christian? Yeah, I'm a Christian. It's like oh, fresh air. Oh, that's so refreshing to find another Christian that believes like I do and knows Jesus Christ. Why? Because life begets life. You see, we're death to the dying, but we're life to the living. Why? Because we have life within us, the life of Jesus Christ in us. It makes life flavorable. Now, I know that there's a lot in the world that think differently. I've had people say they don't want to go to church. Church is so dead and so dry. And so, You know, if they, if they don't know Jesus Christ, it really is tough. I mean, if somebody gave me a Bible before I was a Christian, I couldn't stand to read it. I just didn't understand it at all. 
you can't read life when you're dead. You've got to be made alive first before you can really enjoy it. But I mean, this has gone all the way back in history, not just today. I read some historical things here. Julian, I was told, uh, after Constantine made Christianity popular back in history, about the third century, made it the religion of Rome at that time, Julian said he wished that he could get the old religions back. This is what he wrote. He said, have you looked at these Christians closely? Hallow-eyed, pale-cheeked, flat-breasted, all of them. They brood their lives away, unspurred by ambition. The sun shines for them, but they do not see it. The earth offers them its fullness, but they desire it not. All their desires renounce and to suffer that they may come to die. Well, I don't know what the Christians are like back there, but I don't see many Christians like that today. I see a lot of them go around looking like they've been sucking on a piece of alum, but I've never seen them quite this bad. But Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I might have entered the ministry if certain ministers I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Robert Louis Stevenson said one time, I'm really surprised I've been to church today and I'm not depressed yet. Well, some people don't seem to understand that that isn't really the gospel. Jesus didn't come that we could be sad and somber and dry and dead. You know, I love a good joke. I love life. I love to experience life and think that no one on earth should be happier than Christians and have more fun than Christians. You see, Jesus said the kingdom of God is not meat nor drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy. And the word of God says also, Jesus said, my joy, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Paul the Apostle said, Rejoice, and again I say rejoice. That you look at some Christians today, and their face looks like the cover to the book of, of Lamentations. Woe is me. Uh, salt should create a thirst. And if you're around other people, they should literally get a thirst for you. Now, you've heard people say, Well, you can't make a horse drink water. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. And I like what the one farmer said one time. He said, No, you can't make them drink, but you can put salt in their oats so they will drink. And if they get enough salt in their oats, they'll want to drink. And if you get enough salt around people, I've had seen people who are very rebellious that have gone off to a youth camp somewhere and all of a sudden they got salt all around them and they begin to drink and they come back a changed person. I've seen our young people go from here down to Haiti and come back and they, they, they were involved as salt down there in a putrefying society and they came back totally changed. The salt began to get its flavor back and they were able to really be excited about the Lord. Uh, you know, I really think that many Christians need to tell their faces that they are happy. I've seen some people go around and they said they're happy and they, really their face looks like the cover of the book of Lamentations. They just look like they're walking around stepping on their lower lip. But the Word of God says that that ought not to be. I want you to look with me at Proverbs 15, 13. Proverbs 15, 13. A merry heart maketh a what? Cheerful countenance. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. If you and I are happy, our face ought to show it. If you're really happy, people ought to see it. And I have seen some people that go around with a look on their face that you really want an inoculation so you don't get what they've got. They look like they've got a disease. I'm serious. I have stood up. You ought to stand right here sometimes during worship and praise. I see some people that will no more sing, no more raise their hands, no more get involved. They just look like death warmed over. They really look like, like the old hound dog that's sitting on a Cockleburn, too lazy to move over. You sit there and, and howl. They look miserable. Absolutely miserable. Uh, you know, I, I've been in evangelism. I used to tell people, you're not going to enjoy heaven one of these days. They don't understand what I'm saying. It's the joy of the Lord that you're strengthened. If you, don't ha if you have joy, it's got to come out. Don't look so sad all the time. 
You know, it takes fewer muscles to smile than it does to frown. And some people have developed those frowning muscles. It's incredible. And I think, is there no joy? Is there no happiness in their homes? You know, when our children were growing up, that's one thing I just loved so much. We were always having a good time. Always having exciting time. Oh, yeah, we had times of correction and so forth, but we went right back to having good times. Why? Because we were each other's best friends. And when we come to church, we ought to love each other so much that it was exciting today to see one of our mothers at the restaurant, see someone she hadn't seen for a long time, and just, oh, she's just happy to see her. Went over and hugged her. I thought, isn't that wonderful that Christians can love each other like that? To be honest with you, aren't there some Christians sometimes you'd rather not be around them? Huh? Mr. Gloom, they got that little cloud up over their head all the time, always raining on them. You come and ask them how they are, and they'll take 30 minutes to tell you, oh, I've got this, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing being able to come once in a while to share your, your needs with people, but they seem to never get above their circumstances and say, I'm rejoicing in the Lord. The future is as bright as the promises of God. And you see, this is what the world wants to see. You know, we ought to walk around with a grin on our face to where they'll look at us and think, what do they know that I don't know? They're holding some secret back. I mean, either that or they're sick and they belong in an insane asylum. They can't be that happy and know what's going on around them right now. But if we've read the last chapter, we know we win. Regardless of the circumstances, regardless of whether it's Democrats or Republicans in office, eventually we're going to win. And in the meantime, God says, I want you to be the salt of the earth. And the reason is, we know what satisfies. Jesus said, I am the water of life. You're thirsty? He says, the water I give you will make you so that you'll never thirst again. He said, are you hungry? I'm the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'll feed you so you'll never be hungry again. He forgives our past and our present. Many people in the world are bound because of their past. They're confused because of their present. And I want to tell you something. A lot of people sitting in pews today that have never experienced and understood this principle that when you come to Jesus Christ and when you confess your sins, repent of your sins, renounce your sins, get away from your sins, and appropriate the blood of the Lamb of God for your sins, they're under the blood, never to be remembered against you again. He removes them completely. And depression should have to go then because you are supposed to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. If not, go back and say, Lord, is there some other root back there? Is there some other thing tormenting me back there? Is there something that's trying to cause this depression on me? I re renounce it in the name of Jesus. I stand in the completed work of Calvary. And in Jesus' name, I'm going to experience joy unspeakable and full of glory. There needs to come that time in our life when we can walk right out in the midst of our problem and say, it's well with my soul. Jesus is sufficient. So many times I hear people say, well, I can't understand why God has to do this, why I have to go through this thing. I said, because he's trying to test you and try you and prove you. You need to let patience have its perfect work in you that you can add to your faith virtue and to virtue, knowledge and knowledge, experience and patience and hope and so on and so forth. All these things are working in our lives to prepare us for that which God has for us to do in the days ahead. And we need to rejoice our way through them all. When I see Christians walk with fear, they don't understand that if we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not to our own understanding and all our ways acknowledge Him, He'll direct our paths and we don't need to fear even if we go through the valley of the shadow of death. That's how we become the salt of the earth. How? Trusting in the Lord. It doesn't make, make any difference what the circumstances are, what we have or don't have. We're trusting in the Lord. The Lord will provide those things which we need. My God shall supply all my needs. I thought about the fact that salt lifts also. When you have, go down to the Dead Sea, I understand there's in Salt Lake out west, 
it's awful hard to drown out there. You can jump in the water, you pop right back to the surface. You can't go down. Salt has a lifting effect. Salt also heals. When I went to the doctor this last week and put me on an antibiotic, he says, I want you to gargle with salt. Why? So salt has a cleansing effect and a healing effect on you. Salt can also melt things, hard surfaces. Thank God they had salt in Minnesota in the wintertime. We wouldn't have been able to drive up there. I remember hearing last year where the city maintenance men went in New York State, drove into the yard and loaded up a bunch of truckloads of what they thought was salt and took it out and dumped it on the street only to find out it was crushed glass. It looked the same in the wintertime to them, so, but ice will melt hard surfaces. I just want to say if the church is anything less than this, then it's a failure. Matthew 5.13, Jesus said, If you are not the salt of the earth, you're good for nothing. But Jesus said, The church, if it's not the salt that it ought to be, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is henceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. He didn't say that as a threat to us. He said that's just a fact. If you aren't what you ought to be in the earth, you're worthless. You're useless to me. If we're not purifying and preserving and exciting others to taste, we really have no reason to exist and eventually we'll be headed for disaster. That's why D.L. Moody years ago wrote that thing so famous. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. If you stay in the Word and abide in the Word and the Word abides in you, you'll be what God wants you to be. You'll be the salt that He wants you to be. If you don't, you'll be destroyed. Now that's true. That happened in the European churches many years ago. They left the book and went into the dark ages when the, the Word of God was taken away from the, the individual Christians. And then the Reformation came and the new denominations came along and there was great revival. And they left the book and got away from the book and liberalism set in. And uh, today, as you know, they're ordaining homosexuals and the, the priesthood or the pastors of those churches, more of them, the greater percentage of them say they do not believe in the, the authority of the Word of God, they do not believe in the miracles, they do not believe in the virgin birth. What happened? They, they're putrefying. They're getting away from the Word of God and they're losing their savor and have nothing left to offer. The eastern churches in North Africa uh, centuries ago where there was a great sweeping uh, revival that went across Africa. And again I say, these nations, someone said this last year, well what about these nations that have ten wives? I said, they had the light at one time and they turned away from it. And their children's 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 children down to the generations are paying for the fact they turned away from the light and great is the darkness thereof. But on many of the churches over the archway of the, some of the mosques over in Damascus I'm told, that's half obliterated. It says, Thy kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting one. And right above it, it says, There's no God, there's no God but God, and Muhammad is his prophet. The former Christian churches were wiped out and they became Muslim mosques. Why? They lost their saltiness. Mohammedanism over there is not allowing the church to grow again over there. I'm told that literally, not in the news, but literally hundreds of thousands of Christians are being slaughtered in, in Africa today by the Muslim hordes who do not want to see Christianity grow again. And Jesus said this is going to happen in the last days. You don't have to look along at Protestantism here in the United States. Born in revival and it was fed on the Word of God and decay set, began to set in. When people began to get away from the Word of God again. You know, this is our food and if we don't have that, we'll never make it. They used to have massive revivals, large revivals, continuous revivals. How many of you that have been in church for years can remember when they would have anywhere from two weeks to a month of revival meetings every single night. And like I said just a couple weeks ago, it's hard to get people out for three or four nights in a row now. 
Pastors just say, we can't do it. People are just too busy. They won't do it. Many churches are no longer saying, thus saith the Lord. They're saying, doctor such and such says, and you know, this philosopher says this, and this psychiatrist and this psychologist says this. And I want to tell you something, that doesn't feed the soul. We have to say, thus saith the Lord. Consequently, not many people are getting saved in the church. We're swapping goats. We're not, we're not raising sheep. We're swapping goats from one building to another, one church to another. This pastor draws them over here, and then when it doesn't get too exciting there, they, they run over to another flock over here. And there's no Bible standard anymore. You ask some pastors, why do you do this? Why is this and this? Well, we just had to adjust. That's the way society is. And that's why I ask sometimes, what influence are we having as a church? See, just coming to hear preaching is not going to get it. I mean, I've preached, what, for 20 years now? And preaching alone isn't, doesn't do it. You know that. It's when each individual is salt right where he is during the week. Where we carry those things that we know and we understand you see, Lake Mary and this whole area around here reads us like epistles. We're the only Bible sometimes they'll ever read. And I have just recently again been confronted with a situation where a man says, you know, this guy's supposed to be a Christian, but you can't believe the things he's done to me. This woman over here is supposed to be a born-again Christian. You can't believe what she has. I mean, I did this for them and installed this and took care of this. I'm, I'm just at the end. I'm not going to do anything more for them. Just tell them, forget it. And said, they're just so sweet and gooey and lovey and all this stuff, but they're just stabbing me every time I go there. And I thought, there goes the salt right down the tube. The churches are full of Sunday morning glories who fold their leaves and that's it for the week. Stuff it in, preacher. It's got to last all week. I really believe with all my heart that believers who are not the salt that they ought to be make more unbelievers than the infidels do. Some of this past week this morning in breakfast in Sunday school we were talking about it. And somebody said they couldn't stand the hypocrites and that's why they didn't go to church. And I said to the Sunday school class, I said, well, when they tell me that, I always tell them, now remember something. Here's a principle you have to understand. In order to hide behind something, you have to be smaller than the thing you're hiding behind. And if you're hiding behind a uh, hypocrite, you have to be smaller than them. Now that's just a, a true principle. If you're going to hide, how many of you know I couldn't hide behind this microphone if I wanted to? Unless I was smaller than the microphone. I said, the other thing I tell them then, well, if you really don't like hypocrites, why stay out of church and fail to hear the gospel and go to hell with them when you can go to church and sit with them just in this life, but when you go to heaven, you'll get rid of them. But it's hypocrites. Their inconsistencies, their unconcern, their impurities of life, where they don't see a difference between them and the world, it causes them to lose their saltiness and the people say, if that's Christianity, I don't want it. And their judgment is swift and, and many times their impatience is justified. They say it's time to cast it out. It's unreal, it's inoperative, it's insipid, it's flavorless, and it's unnecessary. Let's get rid of it. Now let me tell you something, what they've seen on television in these past few years. Anytime you start talking to people who don't go to church much, they, the first thing they bring up, you know, these crooks and these gangsters and these brothers, they ought to be blah, 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 blah. What's happening? You know, we're never an island unto ourselves. Whenever we do something that brings shame to the name of Jesus Christ, it affects every other person in the body. How many of you know if I stub my toe, it isn't just my toe that hurts? I hurt all over. I remember a preacher saying one night he was trying to get into bed quietly without letting his wife know, and then during the day she had moved a hassock. And he said he hit the end of that hassock with his toe, and it popped, and it broke. He bellered and screamed like a stuck pig. He said he, he rolled all over the floor and banged in everything. Why did you have to move that? Blah, blah, blah. She got, <laughs> she found out he was coming in too late. 
But there's a lot of people that are yelling because of what they see in the church today. And it's justified. We are to be little Christs. You know there's a law of physics that says there's two ways to equalize temperature. Either hot getting cold or cold getting hot. Now that's a, an unbreakable law of physics. If I put water and ice cubes in my drink glass, by the next morning when I get up, it hasn't frozen solid. It's gotten warm. If I take some warm water and put it in the freezer overnight, then that law of physics takes over and the next morning that hot water is just as hard as it can be. And I want to tell you something. Another law of physics says if you and I do not preserve the earth, it's going to rot us. We'll either win it or it'll destroy us. It's thenceforth good for nothing. What a picture. Jesus said to corrupt the best makes it become worse than the worst. You see, if, if society that is dead right now, if society is dead and we preserve it, it will be preserved. But if salt is corrupted, there's no redemption left. There is no value whatsoever to salt that has lost its flavor. It corrupts water. It corrupts the soil. It'll corrupt compost. It'll corrupt garbage. worse than garbage or animal waste. I mean, you can take garbage and animal waste and put it in the compost heap and make it into something good again. But salt would destroy it all if you try to put it in the compost heap. In Jesus' day, salt was used to cure the meat. They didn't have refrigeration like we've got today. It was also used on the floor of the oven to help the oven to retain its heat because they didn't have thermostats in that day. But when it was ever, whenever it was worn out and no good anymore, they could only take it out and throw it in the street. And men would trample it under their feet. And that's what they understood what Jesus was talking about when he said, if salt lost its savor, it's good for nothing. Don't put it in the garden. How many of you know you don't put salt in your garden? Old salt is not even good in a garden. What constitutes a savorless Christian? One who has gone from heavenly mindedness to earthly mindedness, from being spiritual to being carnal, who have refused the responsibility of bearing the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, if any man come to me and is not willing to take up his cross daily and follow me, that means, Lord, whatever you want me to do, that's what I want to do. He said, whenever you cease to take responsibility, he says, then you become a favorless Christian. And there are a lot of Christians today that love to sing, and they'll sing, take my life and let it be, period. Not take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to be. And God's Word says that we must every day take up our cross daily and follow Him. If we lose that, we become a savorless Christian. And then another way we can become savorless is to begin to say, as Jesus said, My Lord delayeth His coming. Jesus isn't going to come for a while. I mean, we got some time yet. Jesus said, When you come to that place, you're good for nothing as far as the kingdom of God is concerned. When you do not have that expectancy in your heart, He says, Everyone that hath his hope in Him, what? Purifieth himself, even as Christ is pure. The result today, because we see so many Christians that have gone from being heavenly minded to earthly minded and refusing responsibility and saying, my Lord, delay is coming. We've got carnal, sensual, critical people in many churches and in many denominations, many evangelists, nonprofit organizations, Christian broadcasters are being harassed and challenged because of backslidden Christians. Let me tell you, as long as they're in that condition, they're unprotected. The enemy's got wide open for them to destroy them. You know, God said to the, of the nation of Israel, He said, when they were obedient, that He put a fear in the hearts of all the nations around them. How many of you know this is the first time in the history of this nation that 
the enemy's coming over here and beginning to blow up our buildings and wanting to blow up our tunnels. And You know what? In the past, I believe with all my heart because of the godly people that prayed, God put a fear in the hearts of all the other nations. Now we're becoming the target of the radicals of the world because we have gone away from God and all these things that's happening, God's dropping the barriers and the bars and allowing the enemy to begin to come in without any fear. In conclusion, there's three things that this verse should teach us about being the soul of the earth. Jesus wants us to be consistent, bearing fruit, much fruit, much fruit that will remain. And even if we haven't been up till now, we've got to forget those things which are past and press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We don't need to go through the rest of our lives saying, well, it hasn't worked yet, and I haven't been able to do it yet, I guess I never will. We need to say, as for God, He will be my strength. The joy of the Lord will be my strength. And concerning the past, I will confess it to the Lord. I will come into agreement with Him. I will renounce it in Jesus' name. I'll be what He wants me to be. And I will follow His orders that if I will, if, as His people, I'll humble myself and pray and seek His face that He'll hear from heaven. And He will heal this land. We have to be a purifying influence, a preservative, having a preservative effect, and create a thirst. And when I say all that, I realize I'm talking to the congregation. You're not a pastor, you're not a teacher, a scholar, or an evangelist, but you can keep life close to you preserved. The Lord wants us to be salt wherever we are. A little bit of salt here, a little bit of salt there, influencing, affecting our neighbors, our co-workers, our fellow students, wherever we are. We individually can be a witness and a light for Him. We can be a powerful witness for Jesus Christ. That's why the Scripture says the, the believers went everywhere preaching the gospel. And wherever they went, it was just like a flame of fire going out. Why? They were salt. They were full of the life of Christ. They, they, were, <clears throat> they were not insipid. They, had not spo- uh, they, they would not allow spoilage around them. They declared boldly the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want to close with this illustration. I thought it was very interesting. There was a, an atheist one time who loved to refute all the pastor's arguments. Every time the pastor would say something from the Bible, this one man would come to him and try to argue with him and tell him this isn't true, I don't believe this, and I believe this, and blah, blah, blah. He went on and on and on, and the pastor thought, that man is incorrigible. There's no way to change that man. But one night, the man came to his door, knocked very late at his door, and he said, may I come in? And he was weeping. And he said, well, yes, you can come in. He thought, I wonder what happened. Did his wife die or his son die? Or... What happened to this man? I mean, he said to the pastor, pastor, I've enjoyed refuting all your arguments, digging into the, what you teach and try to find every loophole through it I possibly can. But he said, I, I'm coming here tonight to tell you I realize that I am, I'm, I'm a sinner and I need to be saved. He said, well, that's wonderful. He said, what happened? He said, well, I could answer all your questions and argue with all the things you want to bring up. But he said, I have a little neighbor lady that lives next to me. She's crippled. And day and night, 24 hours a day, I've watched that woman, and she's always cheery. And whenever she sees me, no matter how nasty I am to her and how mean I am to her, she's always loving back to me. He said, when I have failed to do something I have told her I would do or tried to fulfill something, didn't fulfill something I could, she was very patient with me. Uh, if she thought there was something she could do for me, he says, I don't care if it's night or day, she'd be over there. The minute she'd hear there's something wrong, she'd be at my door to either bring some food or to help me and say, how can I, how can I minister to this? How can I be a blessing to you? And he said, she's always been patient with me. And he said, I don't know what it is. I didn't know what it was, but now I realize what she really has is what I really need. Despite the argument, I need to know Jesus Christ like that woman knows Jesus Christ. What did she do? She just became salt. 
Every time they came around, she just let, let the life of Christ flow out of her, and she became salt to that man who had all the other answers in the world, but he couldn't answer the secret of her life. There was no other answer except that Jesus Christ was real. May God help us as a body of believers, individually, right where we are, be pure, preserving, and a bright light for Jesus Christ. You see, we're either preserving or we're putrefying. Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth. Wonderful worth our salt. You see, as long as we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we will be fruitful. We will be productive. We will be influential. We may not be able to have a large following, but we'll always have a bright witness.